The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. Thanks for joining us for the Boys of Tech episode 6. I'm Edwin Herman and the other host of the show, Brett King. Welcome, Brett. Howdy. It's good to be here. <laughs> it is. And uh, boy, we've got a few stories to talk about this week. It's uh, been an interesting week in the uh, tech sector. That it has. I guess, uh, well, in no particular order, I think we'll kick off with Xbox Hackers. Uh, basically, the Xbox Live platform is now subject to uh, hackers or, I guess, attackers who are, in fact, really, in essence, creating denial of service attacks over players. That must be really annoying. That must be really, really annoying as a player. It would indeed be really, really annoying, especially when the majority of people who would be shelling out cash to kick other people off or, you know, searching the web for the ability to do this themselves will be those <laughs> really obnoxious players that nobody likes to play with mm. anyway. And they'll be targeting the people who have been playing fairly or telling them off in game for their crude and blatantly nubbish tactics. So really, it's just, they're just being spoil sports, aren't they? They're just... Yep. Yeah. Yep. Bad sportsmanship once again rearing its head, <laughs> especially <laughs> upon the Xbox Live players, the the fertile field for the nub players. That's a real shame because uh, I mean, what can you do? You can't really do a lot about that, can you? I mean, Microsoft is saying that if they detect that, they will ban people from Xbox Live. Now, I'm not really much of a um, console game, or in fact, any computer game type of computer game player. But uh, so, Brett, how how does this work on, on Xbox Live? Do you sign in with a unique name? Can you just create a, another one, or, or you know, in the scenario that you've been banned from Microsoft, how effective would would a ban be? Do you do you play Xbox Live? Um, I have. I don't have an Xbox myself, being a PlayStation player, but um. Yes, you have an account, and as far as I'm aware, they can ban accounts, but I'm not sure whether or not accounts, they could ban a particular Xbox as well. I'm sure they should be able to because the Xbox would, as any internet-connected device, would have an, a unique MAC address for its network capability. Um, so theoretically, if they really wanted to, they could ban an Xbox itself from being able to connect to the Xbox network. But they can definitely ban accounts. But you can create multiple accounts for an Xbox. Are, they, so, are the accounts linked to the Xbox, do you know? You can sign in on anybody's Xbox with your Xbox Live account. But it's whether or not Microsoft themselves could, whether or not they can only ban accounts from Xbox Live, or whether or not they could ban an Xbox from connecting to the network at all. Well, technologically speaking, they should be able to do either, correct? Yeah. So the yeah. question is which one Whether or not they, they do, do yeah. or... I'm not sure. It's a little bit like uh, uh, the situation with Apple recently. Uh, my iPod, and in fact, someone else's as well at work, was stolen. Uh, and mm -hmm. Apple, te 
technologically speaking, have the ability to detect when that particular iPod is plugged in and find out its IP address and whatnot. Technologically, they can do it, but do they? No, they don't. So it'll all come down to, I guess, whether Microsoft will be banning the hardware, the hardware device itself from from joining the network or just the users. I guess it would be a little bit hard if it was the the hardware because you could, you know, it could be someone a shared uh, piece of hardware, you know, shared Xbox that three, yeah. or three or four different people use and of course it'd be a bit unfair in a way to ban mm. the whole device if it's just one player. But then on the other hand, if you're just banning accounts, surely you can just sign up for another you account and away you go. Pre- precisely. There's just banning an account most people who were going to be doing something malicious anyway would have created an account purely for that purpose. So the banning of it is not going to impact them massively. It's only somebody who, you know, stupidly does something wrong on an account that they've become attached to and have their achievements and all that sort of stuff that they've collected um, and have that disappear in a, in oh, a cloud. So of they'd lose all their status. <laughs> but um, most people who were doing this sort of thing would they'd have created an account specifically for it. Mm. But the um, the specific thing that um, we're talking about here, the uh, denial of service attacks on players, there is very little way um, that Microsoft or anybody could trace it back to the original instigator. Most mm. of the time, it's relatively difficult to you know, find out somebody else's IP address uh, unless they tell you it. Um, There are plenty of smart ways of attempting to discern what IP address, especially with the way that the Xbox Live network works and that the Xbox itself broadcasts its IP address as it's connecting through the network. So you can, if you can intercept that traffic, you can find out the IP address. That isn't a part of the way that the Xbox Live network works itself. It doesn't, it doesn't, the network itself doesn't obfuscate the IPs of any of the players connected to it. So you got to wonder, you got to wonder if this is going to go the way of IRC and be overtaken by DOS attacks and other, you know, annoying attacks. Yep. But the thing is, it doesn't actually interfere with the Xbox network itself. itself. It, yeah, it a- only interferes with a particular player. I think it's just another, another tool in the arsenal of the um, really annoying jerks <laughs> on Xbox Live and other uh, game networks who just delight in ruining somebody else's experience. So until Microsoft come up with a different way of... Um, I guess making it more difficult to discern the actual IP address of individual players on their network, which would be a really difficult thing to do, I think. Um, yeah, there's <laughs> there's not going to be a lot out there. Do you think that... To, to stop it. Do you think they've... <laughs> Other they've, than people getting rid of these silly botnets. <laughs> well, yeah, that's the, that's the root of the problem, really, isn't it? You can't do a dot attack unless you've got enough bandwidth to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you think they've targeted people on the Xbox Live network because it's a Microsoft network? Oh, whatever gaming network you've got on, if you've got gamers together, some gamers are just <laughs> hardcore jerks who don't want nothing but to ruin somebody else's day to make themselves feel superior. That's got to be really annoying. It's got to be the point. It's got to be more annoying than just losing your internet connection while you're checking your email or something. Okay, you just lose your connection, you check back later that evening. But when you're playing Indeed. a game, you, you've kind of, it's sort of stateful, isn't it? 
Yeah, okay. yeah, massively more annoying. Um, cheating and obnoxious people are what destroyed the original battle net for a, for a Diablo, and that's um, why anybody who wanted to actually play that game decently would go and do it as as a private game and not join the the, the battle net rankings or. Um, connect to any of the world games because if you were connecting to that network to play Diablo um, you knew that you're going to be connecting to a a network where the other person that you're playing with or the other people that you're playing with are probably cheating um, and probably just kind of rip you off <laughs> It's not the only worry that Microsoft has uh, they've laid off some people as many other companies have as well but uh, <laughs> to make it a little more uh um, tr- tricky for them they've actually overpaid some of these people and they've actually asked the, these overpaid employees to pay it back although they've done an about turn on that and apparently they've they've come back and said oh look it's fine you can you can keep it but uh, what an embarrassing situation <laughs> it's i think it's more a it's a it's bad pr definitely um and the way they handled it not quite nicely enough um but it's still perfectly within their rights they they're talking about overpayments of 4 to 5000 US dollars that's that's a fair chunk of change for anybody. That's per um, person, isn't it? It, it, uh, sure, we can think of it as a, a piddly amount in the greater Microsoft scheme of things, but they're still perfectly within their within their rights to ask for that money back. And then on the flip side of that was that they had what twenty odd people people who were underpaid in their severance. So their yeah. their HR and payroll departments did do a bit of a mix. <laughs> screw up there they might literally have to ask or need to rob peter to pay paul (laughs) well i don't think they'll need to do that (laughs) i'm sure they've got enough liquid capital to (laughs) liquid funds to to cover the (laughs) the the, um the underpayments yeah well that's but it's it's it's, the reason it's news is that it's it's the reason it's news is that it's um, Microsoft doing this, and it was a pretty badly worded letter that they sent out to the people that they'd overpaid, um, with the subtle, uh, you know, undertone of there could be consequences if you did not <laughs> give us back the money we overpaid you. Um, that's I think those are the two reasons why this has made tech news over the past week, because this sort of thing would happen all the time in um, any large organization. You're always going to have payroll mix-ups. Well, you kind of got to think that, you know, these are people who've been uh, laid off as opposed to just a, a an era that's, that's happened in the payroll system on, on employees that are still employed. You'd think that they'd be nice enough just to say, hey, look, you can keep the money rather than doing that only as an about turn. Uh, you know, had they laid them off a month or two later, it would have come to the same. Mm-hmm. I just think uh, it's it's a little, they're being a little bit hard. I mean, come on, you know, soften up. Well, they have. You know, to be fair, they have softened up a little bit and said, look, you can ha- keep the money. That they've made that about turn. But it's just a shame they had to do that about turn. But I think you're you're right. That's the only reason it's in the news the way they handled it and the fact that it's Microsoft. Yes, exactly. Hey, Pirate Bay reckon that seventy to eighty percent of their torrents are legal. Do you believe that? Do you honestly believe that? I would say yes. You reckon? What, what, having what done a quick be... scan uh, after reading that story and having done a quick scan myself, then yeah. Really? Yeah. They, they did a, let's just uh, get some details in here. They basically did a uh, random scan of a thousand 
completely random torrents and reckon between 70 and 80 looked as though they were uh, you know weren't you know were not infringing on copyright I don't know I, I seem to find that hard to believe I well what sort of stuff is on there that's not uh, you know breaching copyright what do people share there's huge amounts of open source material out there there would be pdfs for from what i saw there there are pdfs of uh public domain books and things stuff that's come from like the x archive um that's perfectly legal to redistribute demos video content which is perfectly legal creator you know user created content stuff but You'll find all sorts of stuff on there, including things that, as they admit, that's, you know, between 20 and 30 percent of stuff that is illegal to redistribute. You'll find it all there. But, yeah, you will find a huge amount of stuff on there, which is perfectly legal to redistribute. I guess, um, yeah, I... It's just, uh, uh, you hear so many stories about the illegal content, you kind of form this opinion that this is really the only thing on there. I guess uh, I guess it's a bit of a fallacy. It's a bit like saying the only thing on the internet is porn. Um, I mean, okay, th- there is that out there, but it's really not um, what the internet is really for. <laughs> Depends who you well, are. Well, indeed, as we, know, the, as we know, the internet is for porn. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, there's that famous uh, song, isn't there? The internet. Exactly. But um, no, you know, seriously though, there's. I, I guess that's the you know the analogy that um, oh you know P2P networks are for breaching copyright. That's sidestepping the um, the numerous perfectly legal and powerful uses of P2P in everyday business. The number of different companies that are now supplying the patches and supplying downloads for their material using P2P networks to share the bandwidth to cut down costs um, is is huge. That's actually a great idea. And in fact, there are a lot of people also uh, putting creative work um, out there for fr- uh, free, music, podcasts as well. Uh, um, a lot of people put co- podcasts out on uh, on the P2P network just to gain momentum and gain interest. And I, exactly. So I guess it's just that the figure seemed a little high, I, I guess, and I, I thought, well, maybe it should be about half the figure that they quoted. So you, you had a quick look, Brett, didn't you? And, and you reckon it's about 70, yeah. 70% or so, three quarters? If you look at the entire list, you've got to remember that most people who go to Pirate Bay will have an idea of what they want, and so they'll do a search. And if you're doing a search, you're already narrowing down your scope of sure. what's you're viewing on the thing. So if you're doing a search of something which is going to contain something illegal, then you're going to massively skew it. What you need to do is take a look at the full set of torrents available on there to and a, a, a random sample of the full set of torrents um, to determine whether or not, you know, what sort of percentage of torrents available on there are going to be torrents for something legal or torrents for something that's not. And that's what uh, Pirate Bay claim to have done, that they've taken a, a truly random sample of 1,000. truly pounds. random sample of 1,000 of their total torrents that are available. Well, you know, Adobe really should have looked at using these sorts of uh, methods for sending out their, their patches because uh, <laughs> basically a security researcher has published what is essentially a homebrewed patch for a critical Adobe Reader vulnerability that hackers are exploiting. 
uh, and they've basically, in other words, beaten uh, Adobe to releasing a, a fix for it. Mm. What does that say about Adobe? Well, <laughs> they took their time. Maybe there was uh, some quality assurance issue that they were trying to work on, or who knows, maybe they're just overworked. <laughs> the flip side, of course, is, I mean, this on the face of it, it sounds really good, and it's like, wow, this is great, you know, that this guy is really showing up Adobe, but would you really trust a, a homemade patch? Precisely. I'd be a little Who bit, know? you know. Would it, you really trust a homemade patch, and does it breed a accepting of patches that don't come from an official source. Yes, it's gonna, go, uh, it can, has a potential you, you to publish undo. a brief news article about this researcher who's posted their homemade patch and everybody downloads it. And then you've got all of the people who want to, you know, put in their Trojans, put in the new way to get a virus passed. And they start to portray themselves as somebody putting out a homebrew patch for a critical bug when really they're just introducing <laughs> a critical bug. So you've got flip sides of the coin there is, is on the one hand, you've got uh, the possibility of somebody fixing a patch, uh, putting out a patch, which will, you know, more snappily close up a security hole in, in users, um, in user systems um but on the flip side of that you're bringing in that that mentality of if the person says that they're a researcher who's patched a bug that you get other people other users your average joe downloading extra stuff off the net thinking that they're patching bugs what they also do now is this is really low they release what looks to be antivirus software which is in fact a virus or a worm or a or some some piece of malware, mm. and that that's really low, don't you think? I mean, that's ba- basically as low as you can go in terms. It of is pretending that your software is something that it's not. Well, I think the only step lower than that is producing a piece of software that actually is what it says it is, but then surreptitiously packaging with it all of the extra stuff: your adware, your malware, your spyware stuff, packaged with something which actually does what it is. Well, I look, I, I don't want to suggest that this is necessarily a virus or, or a worm or anything bad. In fact, it's quite likely that it's perfectly fine, but it does kind of make you a little wary. Um, and to be quite honest, I probably wouldn't uh, um, download something that's not from Adobe uh, to fix yep. their systems, which is a real Indeed. shame. It's a real shame that it's come to that. Because if these vulnerabilities and nasties out there weren't there in the first place, you know we wouldn't have to worry about that. And if there was a a vulnerability that was somehow discovered, you really wouldn't think twice about downloading something uh, from someone else. But unfortunately, the reality is these days that yeah, I I'd, I would think twice about that. Indeed, indeed. Unless it was somebody that you, a place or somebody that you um, knew and trusted or had enough information about to, you know, hold them as close to official as you could um, to download something from them, then the, the best practice in this sort of situation is a bug is declared. You then, for the period it takes between when the bug is declared and the official site releases an actual official patch you just be more cautious with what you're doing with that particular piece of software it's basically a bit of common sense (laughs) 
you would think that the uh, security houses out there like the you know semantic and trend and so on would actually look at this and you would think that if there was anything bad that they would actually say so and it would be out there in no time but yeah um, you'd you'd hope for that that would be the best scenario we talked in a previous episode about cloud computing and whether that's a good idea and whether you know, true cloud computing where everything is in the cloud and nothing lives locally is a good idea. Well, Google has been hit by a mail blackout, as they call it. Basically, a what was a two-and-a-half-hour outage, which could have been as high as four hours, according to some people, some anecdotal evidence coming in there from people trying to access the service. Uh, that's really a bad thing. That's that's really bad for Google. This is basically the entire Gmail service offline for several hours, which means that no one can get to their mail. Indeed, it is one of the major flaws in the, the concept of cloud computing. Um, obviously, their cloud wasn't quite dispersed enough to handle it. <laughs> and they still haven't reported what it was um, that actually brought the system down. Now, they said they'd have a look into the root cause and they said uh, that we know how important Gmail is to our users so we take this very seriously and that we are very sorry for this. So they, they seem fairly genuine and to be quite honest, the uh, culture in Google Labs is, um, you know, the, the very, um, how do I put it? That's it, certainly not, uh, it is something I think they would take quite seriously compared to, to other, you know, organizations possibly. Definitely. And definitely. I, I, I think this they is... genuinely feel bad about it. It's not a good look. Yeah. But it, it, it uh, does come back to this whole question of, you know, is, you know, the concept of cloud computing is, is good. There are some merits, but it may not be the be all and end all of it. It's the problem of having your cloud computing in one small basket that is too interconnected. That's, um, yeah. Who knows what it was that brought this thing down, but in a proper cloud environment, nothing should have been able to bring it down because there should always be a bit of it somewhere around. Absolutely. Hey, there's a new version of the Configure worm called Configure B++, has the ability to update itself, and worse still, has a back door so that uh, hackers can effectively gain control of these PCs that are infected. So really, I think it's true colors are emerging. It's really a bot. It's it's a piece of malware to create a botnet, really, isn't it? Yep, yep. Conflicker is, is the, the next generation botnet creator. So that that's really... Because people were wondering what its payload was, uh, what it really does, why it's there, why people, why someone created it. I think we now know mm-hmm. it's just yet another botnet. Yeah, um, well, it's um, irrelevant what the original purpose was or what the original creator um, wanted to do with Conflicker. It's as soon as it was out there. Most of these viruses and um, malware and Trojans, they get out there, they get into um, into uh, networks of um, malicious users who then on-sell the different bits of code or grab the bits of code as they're around and re-reverse engineer it and create their different variants. So whatever the original purpose was, um, Conflict of B++ might have been created by somebody completely different who just managed to get their hands on the on the code for it. But it's definitely a, um, a step up from the original, which is saying something, um, with the additions that they've done to it, the ways that it can now distribute itself, the 
improved stealth functionality to hide itself from the um, different conflicker removal programs that have been created out there. It's but they don't detect it, do they? It, it can't be detected. No, the existing. Yep, the original conflicker um, detection and removal tools will not pick up this new one. It's they've yeah they've made it check. <laughs> This thing could be pretty big, and I can see why it's really uh, annoyed Microsoft because this is, I, I guess, one of the big worms of, of 2009. Indeed, it, it is one of the, the big worms of 2009. And <laughs> what's probably gotten, you know, annoying Microsoft and annoying anybody, um, anybody in the IT field is the fact that these things wouldn't spread if people would just patch their machines. The floor has been known for ages. It's still using the same floors. Oh, so this is actually uh, infecting uh, a known floor that a patch exists out there? Indeed. Microsoft Security Bulletin MS08-067 patches the floor that Conflicker uses <laughs> and this Conflicker uses uh, to um, proliferate. So but the, the, the problem <laughs> is the wetware, isn't it? Indeed. The, <laughs> the, it's it's a, definitely a peb cap. A peb cap. <laughs> a peb cap. The problem yeah. exists between keyboard and <laughs> chair. I love that acronym. <laughs> Although I guess it depends the way you look at it. You could argue that if Microsoft hadn't built in these flaws in the very first place then we wouldn't have these issues either so i guess it depends on the way you look at it but i agree with you that there really needs to be um more education out there but i don't know that that's ever going to happen yes yes it's (laughs) you'll never have it as long as you have people involved in the equation but on the flip side of that is you never want to not have people involved in the equation. <laughs> You're caught between a rock and a hard place. You are indeed, and I don't see I don't see that situation changing. No, and I think Microsoft <laughs> finds itself caught between a rock and a hard place. What they're also doing, uh, another story here, is suing TomTom over patent claims. They claim that TomTom's version of the uh, Linux kernel is basically infringing on some of Microsoft's patent claims. Now, I don't know whether this is Microsoft pulling out the you know everything it can um, against uh, you know TomTom, and in fact, you know there's a good reason to because they certainly don't have much of a presence in the embedded market. Uh, but on the other hand, if it is true, shouldn't they be allowed to be doing this, and it's well within their rights? Yes. <laughs> if if they are breaching patents that Microsoft has, then obviously they, they can do this. And they've been claiming for years that um, different parts of Linux and other open source operating systems violate um, patents that they hold. That, but they've never gone after anything. <laughs> they've not gone after Linux or any of the, the open source software which violate these patents. No, they kind of deal with Novell. But they have, yes, indeed. They've gone after specific entities that use those open source products, such as TomTom, such as you said, with Novell, to try and work out. And, of course, there's all of the ones that go on behind the scenes, which don't get to the point of um, suits being filed against them. Microsoft's all big for negotiating their licensing arrangements for licensing the stuff out instead of going after somebody in court with a suit but microsoft in this case doing it because they tom tom has not been receptive to the 
licensing negotiations that they've been putting out. Well, some analysts say that maybe TomTom are safe. We, we don't really know much um, about this particular case and really until it plays out in court. We're not Until it plays out in court, exactly. It's the 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 only place that patents and their validity get checked, is because uh, as we all know, it's relatively easy to apply for a patent if you've got the money to pay for it. There have been patents um, granted for the most ridiculous things, things with you know prior art going back thousands of years, but because it was worded interestingly, the patent, the person reading the patent application obviously passed it through. So patents don't get tested until they're challenged. So this might be a stage where some of these patents that Microsoft is claiming that TomTom have infringed on actually get tested and challenged in a court, and we'll see whether or not they stand. Well, Microsoft do say that it's really a last resort, but then again, they probably would say that anyway. So as you say... Well, it's definitely their last resort sort of thing. They far prefer to... um, work out licensing arrangements where it never has to go to court because as I said if it goes to court the patents themselves get challenged get tested and if the patent itself that they're you know putting a suit against gets challenged and found invalid or found ridiculous or whatever then the other person wins and the patent goes bye-bye. It's much better if Microsoft settles those things out of court where the patents never get challenged, never sees the the, the light of public scrutiny, and Microsoft gets some um, licensing revenue coming in from it. Well, so, it, it does make you wonder how many of the numerous out-of-court settlements that Microsoft has done in, in this sort of uh, space would have actually gone against Microsoft in court had they gone through it really does it really does because at the end of the day if you know you were accused of infringing on uh, a microsoft patent and you were offered i don't know some deal that 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 made it worthwhile even if you think perhaps you were in the right but you're not 100 percent sure it kind of might be a nice out for you so you may Mm. so you may well cut that deal with microsoft even Indeed. Though, even though it may have played out in your favour in court, um, yeah, it, it's all about uh, taking the risk, um, or just taking. It's the all money about taking that risk, and it's it's also about who you're battling against. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? Uh, they say they say the way to win a lawsuit is really just with your with your pockets. Yeah, um, which is very very unfortunate, but it's what they say is often the case, you know. All right, we talked about uh, Nokia introducing a Skype application on its uh, new cell phone handsets. Now here's an interesting twist. Uh, There are already two cell phone providers in the UK have come out and said, no, we don't like this. Why are they saying that? Because it's going to eat into our profits because we make a lot more money on standard voice calls than we would on the data used by voice over IP, which is what... Skype users, and this is kind of this touches on really on on what I said uh, in the last episode. I you know I did put the question out there. It, it's a difficult one because uh, you know Nokia and other handset manufacturers have been dictated by uh, network providers for a while. Maybe this is uh, uh, Nokia showing showing them who's boss and, and saying, well, look, you know, this is going to change now. You know, um, 
you know, the network providers are just going to have to deliver what we provide. And I guess of all of them, Nokia has the, the clout to be able to do that. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see how it plans out. You uh, you definitely had your um you know your precognition going on last week. <laughs> well, you know the the other situation that can happen is, uh, and I can see this happening here in New Zealand, the way we get shafted by our cellular providers is that we'll get we'll either not get those handsets here, or uh, we'll get a sort of a customized version where that feature is disabled. Hmm. But on the other hand, is how useful is that anyway? Because, you know, in in the real world, you're out there looking for hotspots. They're all different. There's there's nothing that's um, homogenous. They're all different. Some of them are restricted. Some of them aren't. Some traffic shape, some don't. Some allow voice over IP traffic, some don't. Uh, some authenticate in one particular method, some via a different method, some not at all. There's there's really no consistency out there, and therefore there's no guarantee that you know you can make that call. I mean, at least it has the ability to switch over to the standard um, voice call through the uh, cellular network if mm. if you don't want to use the the you know or you're not able to use the voice over IP where you are or if there's no coverage. But uh, I'm just questioning how useful that add-on is anyway. Yeah, yeah. It'll- be interesting to see um see what it turns out like especially in this country <laughs> yes especially in this country <laughs> i can see the, the the new zealand data network grinding to a halt as three people decide to try and use skype <laughs> <laughs> sad but probably true hey well on to the new zealand stories now then um it's good segue into that uh the great news i guess the biggest news um with uh, respect to the section 92a of the copyright act is that uh, the government, uh, John Key, if you like, pretty much is the government these days, <laughs> has <laughs> delayed or has announced that the copyright law amendment, section 92A, will be delayed. And they're going to look at revising that and revisiting that and seeing if an agreement can be reached. So I, I guess it's a step in the right direction. It is indeed a step in the right direction. I, the, the pessimist in me would say that it's just not just paying lip service uh, at the end of the I think there's a one month delay I think that they they're announced 27 March I think 27 is the date. March yeah. yeah I think the pessimist in me would say come 27 March it'll just roll back in and away we go uh, although you know the flip side is the optimist in me says that hey this is the chance for things to be put right uh, if national does the uh, the right thing they'll scrap that part and away we go and we're all happy indeed although uh, <laughs> if not scrap it do a complete redo of it. <laughs> well, that, that would be uh, that would be wishful thinking, maybe, but I, I think that would be the best option. Judith mm. Tizard has actually uh, come out against that, saying that it's a mistake to delay this, and I'm not prepared to see, as a New Zealander who cares about creative New Zealanders, them ripped off by kids, mainly kids who think film and music is free. Gosh, I'm sure she's in bed with Universal and Warner and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. I think so. I think uh, she might have been given a nice little bit of a nice, you know, handshake behind the back sort of thing. Well, yeah, you got to wonder. It just seems a little odd. But uh, maybe she's just being a little protective of of her work because that was really her bill that she introduced. This is a great idea. Uh, In fact, I've had ideas that this should happen some months ago. And finally, it is going to happen. Soon we'll have the ability to text 111 rather than calling. 
this is this is great. It has some true real life situations where you would use this. Perhaps you can imagine yourself uh, uh, in the middle of uh, or, you know, being a victim of a burglary. You know, someone's in your house. You're hiding away in the bedroom somewhere. They haven't got to you yet. Now, if you pick up the phone and ring 111, they're going to hear you. If you can somehow hide where you are, send a text through and uh, and make that call that way. I think that's fantastic. I think it's uh, I think it's a fantastic idea as well. It's um yeah, it, it meets so many different situations as you said of of when being able to make a call and actually talk would be either detrimental to yourself or if you were incapacitated in in a way that you could not verbalize what it was that you were trying to talk about if you if you were deaf um had a hearing impairment or for whatever reason you you couldn't use your voice you would still be able to get all the information that was needed off to 111 and have somebody come on their way actually i hadn't thought about that the deaf community would could potentially benefit hugely from this the other situation that comes to mind is where your cell phone's run out of juice but it's just got a little bit enough in there to be able to send a text just not enough to make a call and if you need to make that critical call that's another way of doing it on the text Yes, definitely. I, in fact, there I'm surprised they haven't done this earlier. Plenty of good reasons. I'm really surprised oh, yeah, they haven't yeah, done I'm, this earlier. It's, it's kind of so simple yet so potentially useful. Maybe they were just waiting for the infrastructure or maybe they're waiting for it to be you know, able to be done in their budget. And this week, there's uh, a very small celebration has been happening. We've cracked open the bubbly and we've had the celebrations what i'm referring to is 30 years of the barcode in new zealand eh? the humble black and white bars have been here for 30 years e- economists estimate that it saves us 20 dollars a week on average per household simply by having barcodes on our products that can be scanned congratulations barcode <laughs> I think we should do a toast to the humble barcode. Now, remember, just to clarify this, this is 30 years since introducing barcodes in New Zealand. Obviously, not 30 years of barcodes in existence. They've been around a little bit longer than that. But, uh, yeah, certainly in this country, we've had them here 30 years this week. So, there we go. And actually, if I could just uh, add a little anecdote on that. My daughter, who doesn't quite speak yet, but does understand, understands the word barcode in both French and English. So, you can ask her... Show me the barcode, and whatever she's looking at, she'll turn it over to the back and point to the barcode. So, <laughs> oh, cute. <laughs> well, look, that's pretty much all the stories I think for this week. Brett, is there anything you wanted to to raise? No, no, not not this week. Once again, I'm still recovering from moving house. <laughs> oh, still, all right, Brett. Thank you uh, again for hosting uh, episode six with me, and thank you to all you listeners out there. We'll have episode seven along next week. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.